Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are free. Nearly 500 episodes and counting all available for free. There is an Other People app. That too is free. Everything's free. So what this means is if you like the program, if you get something out of it and you would like to show some support, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right. Okay. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. So, hey, everybody. Right. Welcome to right. the Other People Podcast. This is the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting in Los Angeles, and I'm very excited to have Carmen Maria Machado on the program today. She has a story collection out from Grey Wolf Press. It is called Her Body and Other Parties. It is a finalist for the 2017 National Book Award. Carmen Maria Machado, Her Body and Other Parties, out there now from Grey Wolf. The National Book Award ceremony and benefit gala is coming up on november 15th this episode goes live on november 8th just one week prior to the national book award ceremony carmen maria machado could win the national book award she and i will be in conversation in just a minute i'm not going to take very long here uh, in the monologue i want to get to the conversation but i do want to say a few words about the fundraiser that I've been doing for Matt and uh, Catherine Salisis, the t-shirt fundraiser. If you've listened to the program over the past couple of weeks, then you're up to speed. If you have not been listening recently, or if you are new to the program, Matt Salisis is an author. He was my guest on this program in episode 145. His wife, Catherine, is battling stomach cancer. And they have two young kids. It's a very difficult situation, to say the least. And uh, because, you know, we live in the United States where you have to have bake sales and sell T-shirts in order to pay for cancer treatment, uh, I've been holding a T-shirt fundraiser to help them bridge the gap and cover costs. So uh, that fundraiser, I'm recording this on Saturday, November 4th. Uh, The fundraiser wrapped up last night, Friday, November 3rd. It is now over. It was a two-week deal. And we raised more than $6,000 for Matt and Catherine and family. And actually we, we raised more than $12,000 because as many of you know, Roxanne Gay, the author, uh, also a past guest on this program 
was kind enough to offer to match funds up to $5,000. And then she bumped it up to, to 6,000. So she matched what we raised basically and pushed us over the $12,000 mark. We raised more than $12,000 for Matt and Katherine in a period of two weeks. So I want to thank everybody who uh, supported that effort, who bought a t-shirt, who made a donation, who retweeted, who shared on their Facebook wall, whatever it is that you contributed to the effort. Uh, I, I sincerely appreciate it. And I especially want to say thank you to Roxanne Gay, who is an extraordinarily generous individual, more than $6,000. You know, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm very amazed by that generosity. I admire it so much and I hope to emulate it. I think the world needs more of it because, you know, Roxanne's, she's doing very well. She's a, she's a very successful author and she has the ability to help, but she's not a bazillionaire. She's just very kind and giving. And, uh, that is something to pay attention to. It's a very good thing. And the beauty of it too, is that it's contagious and inspiring. So I hope you'll consider it the next time somebody in need, um, you know, crosses your path or you see somebody trying to sell cupcakes to pay for a medical procedure, buy some cupcakes. That's what I tell myself because, you know, I, I get it. There are a lot of uh, worthy causes out there. There are a lot of people doing bake sales for cancer treatment on the internet, unfortunately, in the United States of America. So you can't help every single cause. But what I tell myself is that I can help a lot more than I probably do. That I think is my point. Because it is, it, you know, it's, it's sort of a mystery. Where is the line? How much can you help? How generous is too generous? I think I can give more than I think I can give. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make any sense? And uh, Roxanne is an example of a person who probably gives more. So uh, very pleased that we raised more than $12,000 for Matt and Catherine. Uh, obviously wishing Catherine uh, and, and the family nothing but the best. And, you know, they have an overall, just so you know, they have an overall fundraiser. So... Let me try not, let me try to not be confusing about this. The t-shirt fundraiser that I held raised more than 12,000. That $12,000 is going to go to an overall fundraiser that is being run by some of Matt and Catherine's close friends. The goal of that overall fundraiser is $90,000. Okay. So when they get the 12,000 from the t-shirt fundraiser, they are then going to be about five or $6,000 shy of their overall goal. Does that make sense? So as of today, you add $12,000 to the overall, it's going to be about five or six K shy of getting them fully funded. So what am I trying to uh, tell you? I'm trying to tell you that you can still help the fund. The overall fund is at youcaring.com. It's a you caring fund. I'm going to pin a link to that you caring fund on the other people, Twitter feed at other PPL. So you can find it. It'll be right at the top of my feed. If you want to help Matt and Katherine and, uh, you know, support this very worthy cause, you just go to that You Caring Fund and you can make a donation right there. Okay? 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So uh, my guest, Carmen Maria Machado, she was here just a couple of weeks ago on the, you know her swing through Los Angeles for book tour, and uh, just delightful getting a chance to talk with her uh, right at this moment when she is experiencing such a great ride. Uh, nominated for the National Book Award, a finalist for the 2017 prize, the uh, award ceremony coming up on November 15th in New York City. A lot of great nominees. You can watch that uh, ceremony on the internet. It'll be live streamed. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Carmen Maria Machado. Her story collection, one more time, is called Her Body and Other Parties, available now from Grey Wolf Press. It's been an amazing process, and obviously, whatever would have happened with the reception, I've had a really great time publishing this book, and I'm really happy that it's out in the world. But of course, all this attention is like wonderful. You know, it's very exciting, overwhelming, but exciting. Okay, so let's go. Let's go backwards. Um, like, how long did it take you to write? There's eight stories in the collection. Eight stories. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to write the eight? So they were written over the course of like a five-year period. So the earliest one, Difficult at Parties, I wrote in grad school uh, my second year at Iowa. And the newest one is Eight Bites, which actually, it's so new that it wasn't even included in the first rounds of submissions of that manuscript um, when it went to the first round of editors for submission. That story didn't even, it wasn't finished, so it wasn't in there. Um, And only when I did the second round of submissions, which included Grey Wolf, uh, did I put that story in. Oh, okay. I mean, I've written other stories I've written other things that aren't don't appear in the collection, so it's not like it's just it took me five years to write those eight stories. But um, I've written other things, but they just didn't really fit in thematically, so I didn't include them. Is there a common way for your stories to uh, like actualize themselves? Like, do you do you usually have like a vision? Do you get caught on a sentence? Do you see a person? Like, how does it usually happen? It, it depends. Um, some of the stories actually were born out of their own forms, so especially heinous, uh, which is, you know, these sort of fictionalized recaps of Law and Order SVU. That one came to me as a form. I thought, what if I did this exact thing? Um, I've never watched an episode of Law and Order SVU. Yeah, I feel like I I sort of intend the story that you can sort of read it. You can sort of read it without having seen the show. I think if you've seen the show, there's some maybe like Easter eggs in there that you might find one might find very pleasurable. Um, But yeah, I sort of intended it to not necessarily have to be read by somebody who's seen the show. Um, much in the same way that like, I don't know, I've just, I have, um, I was just reading Bennett Sims new collection and he has a, a story in there that has a Hitchcock film, which I've never seen. I think it's Vertigo uh, in it. And 
it's like you can still read the story and enjoy it without having seen the film. So I feel like I just wanted to sort of be, you know, it should be accessible that way. Um, and then that inventory, which is the sort of a list of a woman's sexual encounters over the course of an apocalypse, um, also came to me as a form. I was like, what if I wrote a story that was just all sex scenes? <laughs> what would happen then? Uh, and other stories. That, that's really what it was. It was like a question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, what if I did this thing? And I mean, I asked my, myself that question a lot and sometimes the experiment that comes out of it does not work. You know, I'll be like, what if I did this thing? It's like, well, I can't, <laughs> like, no, this is a, real bad. Okay. But this, this, this brings me to an interesting, uh, question is how many, like, what's the ratio? How many stories that are started wind up coming to fruition versus how many do you have to sort of put aside? Oh, I have dozens of stories that have never gone anywhere. Um, where I'll have like a couple paragraphs or a concept or something that like, either it's sort of a, it's like the concept is DOA or like, I'm not the right, I'm not either I'm not the right writer or I'm not the right writer right now to like attack a certain concept. But like my story, um, a story I have in the collection called mothers, I actually started writing, like I wrote the first half of it three years before I finished it. And I started it and then I stopped like halfway through and I was like, I don't know how this story ends. And I, and then many years later, I like pulled it out of, you know, a file and said, Oh, I have now lived. Some, I've, I've had some experiences. I've lived some things, and now I feel like I'm in the right place to, um, you know, to finish the story. And I and I did. So in that case, it was like I had to grow as a writer into the story that I was had sort of conceived of along, you know, before. Um, and yes, yeah, some stories come from uh, like concepts. You know, with um, the resident, I really wanted to do like a horror story set in a very uh, isolated area. And so I was like, well, a writer's a writing residency, you know, right. It's like, put this, like really like all these artists, you know, up in the middle of nowhere and like, see what happens. So that one was less form and more just like, I mean, I guess that is also like, what happens if I do this? Um, yeah, writer's residencies are a little creepy, aren't they? They are. What's funny is I started it before I'd ever been to one. Um, like I was sort of just going on, this concept was like, I know they're like in the wilderness or a lot of them are like in the wilderness. So I might as well try that. Somebody brings you food. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, when I started going to them, of course, a lot of material, more material came out of that. Cause I, you know, had various weird encounters. Um, well, like, give me a weird encounter. Well, <laughs> the first residency I ever did, um, a resident a fellow resident stopped me one morning and said, she basically was like, are, are you okay? Is everything all right? Like, I know we don't really know each other, but are you okay? And I was like, what are, uh, yeah, what are you talking about? And the night before she said that she had been up, she'd been going to bed and she'd walk us in my room and she'd heard me crying. But when she said what hour it was, I was like, oh, I'd been asleep for a long time. Uh, when, <laughs> yeah, the look on your face is exactly, <laughs> is exactly how I felt. I was like, well, I'd been asleep for many hours. Like I was not crying last night. You cry in your sleep? I not. I've never been told I cry in my sleep. I do all the time. Oh, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. I was going to say, I was like, that's, <laughs> hmm. uh, but it's funny because then later, um, you know, like we mentioned this to the residency director and she sort of had some theories. She's like, maybe it was this animal or, but we were just, it was so strange. And then another, at another residency, I was chatting with a writer while we were walking back to our cabins and we both heard what sounded like a woman screaming. And it was at uh, Hedgebrook, which is an all women's residency. And we where were is like, that one at? It's in uh, it's uh, Woodby Island, like off the coast of Seattle. Oh, okay. Um, so you're like in the middle. I mean, it's gorgeous, but you're like in the middle of nowhere. It's like really isolated. I mean, there's just big creaking trees. I mean, it was just it was you know so aesthetically terrifying. Um, and we both kind of went running toward the cabins, like saying like hello, you know, is anyone everyone okay? And we kind of accounted for everybody, and we were like, what? 
what the fuck did we hear? So it's haunted, is what you're saying. Well, th- then we mentioned it to somebody, and they were like, oh, there's actually some kind of cat. There's like, some kind of wild cat that like makes us sound like a woman being murdered. And I was like, oh, maybe that's what we hear. What do you mean a wild cat? Like a, like a mountain lion? Or, or no, like a, like a bobcat. I don't know. They mentioned, they said there was like, they were like, oh, it's probably was like this, this, this. Just a mating bobcat. Wild animal or something. And yeah. I was like, okay. But like, we were both... Like, it wasn't just me. It was both... Like, both of us were like, someone's in trouble. And we both, like, ran to help. And so, like, I don't know. So I feel like there's something about... I mean, sort of what I talk about in the story is, like, it's not just about... Obviously, like, the setting is very creepy. You know, you're, like, alone for a large part of the day. You know, you're in this isolated sort of wilderness. You're with a lot of sort of, like... Uh, you know, not in a negative, but like very sensitive people. You have a bunch of just artists, like wounded creative people, right? Exactly. So there's just like a lot of like energy that's kind of just like moving around, and then also like being alone with your own thoughts. I feel like is it's very like the longer you're by yourself, like the weirder your thoughts get. So I feel like I can speak to this, right? It's just like the perfect setting. It's like the perfect setting for a horror story. So in that case, like I was just sort of like, oh, um, you know, I want to write a story like this, and so I sort of structured it. It's sort of structured roughly like. Um, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. So there's like this sort of part where she's going to the residency and then sort of at the residency. And um, so, yes, I feel like a lot of my stories are me just being like, what if I try this? What if I try this? I don't. And and using, and using, it sounds like uh, other creative art or creative projects or other pieces of artwork, even if it's not necessarily literature as maybe like a inspiration or framework or like, you know, like it's like you're playing with a form that you have enjoyed or found fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's not, um, I mean, I feel like I bounce off of other work very well, which is why when I'm having like writer's block or what you could call writer's block, I'll just start reading something. That makes sense though. Like, and that's yeah. like, it's so easy to forget. And I, uh, I want to say I was reading an interview with a musician who that was like midlife kind of crisis situation. And the right, uh, the musician was having trouble writing new songs and somehow talked to Bob Dylan because that's who you reach it. Because you sure, have, sure, cause you have course, that right. option. <laughs> but he was his advice was he's like just go listen to your favorite records. He's like go listen. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. And I tell this. I mean, I get this question a lot at like you know Q and A's, and then people are like, "What do you do when you have writer's block?" And I'm like, "I read, and if I'm reading the right things." And sometimes it's a new book, and sometimes it's a book that I return to, like it's a book that's a classic. I read The Haunting of Hell House quite a lot, actually. But um, you know, if you're reading, it just gives you. Yeah, it's just like it's sort of refilling the tank, you know. It's like I'm I'm returning to the things that made me want to be a writer and like things that are like more brilliant than what I've been writing and like that's gonna help me get back in that headspace. Um so yes, I feel like a lot of my work is sort of me bouncing off of of narratives of various kinds, um, and like a lot of what if experiments. I don't usually start with characters. Um they're usually secondary. I know some people are like, Oh, the character spoke to me, but like that's not how it goes with me. Like I I figure out the character that's gonna be the most that's going to jangle in the most interesting way, like in the framework that I've created. So how do you do the work? Do you, are you morning writer, night writer, whenever you can fit it in writer? Like what's the situation for you? I am not a write every day person. Um, I work best. I work best just in bursts and I work best when I have like a lot of open time ahead of me. So, you know, some writers will kind of like snatch it, you know, a few minutes here and there and they'll kind of, but I, I can't do that. Like I need to be sort of thinking I need to be, in a very relaxed state where I'm not like doing anything else. So I get my most work done at residencies actually. Um, and I'll do like a ton of work. Like I, I mean, last fall I did a bunch and I like finished the edits for the, for her body and other parties. I wrote a draft of a memoir, which I also then sold to gray wolf. I wrote like multiple essays and a bunch of new short stories. Like I'm just incredibly productive at residencies. How long are these residencies? 
Um, last year I did Hedgework, which was three weeks. I did Playa, which is one month, and then I did Yada, which What's was Playa? six weeks. Six weeks. Um, Playa is in Oregon. It's in the Oregon desert, and it's gorgeous. Um, it's I didn't realize that like Eastern Oregon is basically like New Mexico. Like it's high desert. I had no idea. I, I had no idea that any part of Oregon was not like f- verdant and green. Um, so it was beautiful and like very wildlife intensive. So I like. What'd you see? Um, I tried to, well, I was drying my laundry on the, um, railing and a hawk got tangled in one of my shirts. And so I had to go out and like put my foot on the shirt so the hawk could like fly away. Um, one day I came back from dinner and with my flashlight, like shining my way back to my cabin and there was a half of a rabbit in front of my door, like as if it had just ripped like a piece of paper, just, it was like the lower half of a rabbit. Um, what is that? Who did that? A coyote? I, 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 well, I, or a bird, some kind of bird, maybe. Yeah, maybe yeah. It was the hawk being like, fuck you. Well, no. <laughs> that was like, it was offering a gift. Oh, it was offering me a gift, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, but I was watching a Nate, like my wife and I are, we're very fragile people and we can't, uh, we can't watch anything that's even like remotely upsetting on television after like dark. <laughs> and so to go to bed at night, we watch these nature documentaries on Netflix. Those There's are like, really scary though. But they're all about death. Right. They're all about, right. And that was a thing. escape. And yeah, so the, yeah. I was watching one last night and it's like an eagle coming after a bunny and it's like, do we, I just want to see some like animals hopping around like in spooning. nature. Yeah. Yes. I want spooning bunnies. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it felt like it was a lot of like death encounters. Um, saw a lot of deer. I saw like a giant owl, like I the biggest owl I've ever seen in my entire life. That's cool. And then I woke up because I would hear coyotes just like baying and howling and it sounded like they were right outside my window. Um, and then I told them about it and they're like, no, they're up in the mountains. Like they're not even near here. And then when I looked like, you know, every house had a journal that people have been keeping. And like, I flipped back a few pages and somebody was like, it sounds like the coyotes are outside, but they're not. They're in the mountains. <laughs> like somebody so who, else that had who, that exact fear. Any writers we know, like you'd be like flipping through like, oh my God. Uh, uh, no, I don't, I don't remember. Um, I don't remember like seeing any names that I recognized, but I mean, it was just, I don't know. It was like very exciting and, uh, very wild. And I felt, um, and it was very dry. So like I was, cause it's in the desert. So I was just like, I'd be right reading and like blood, like drip out of my nose, like onto the tip. Like I felt like it was this very like liminal terrifying like death adjacent i was just place. gonna say like basically every <laughs> description you've given me of your time at, at uh these writing retreats sounds like a little bit terrifying they are i mean i but i enjoy that i get lots of work done i meet lots of really cool people i i do enjoy it i think i, I mean i enjoy i feel like that that space like that liminal creative slightly weird you and michiko kakatani love the world i know world. right I don't know. It's like the dream space. It's like very, it's like terrifying and pleasurable at the same time. That's great. Yeah. I was looking, uh, there was an article online, uh, about these pods. I don't know if you, it's like going around the internet, but basically it kind of looks like an Airstream trailer, but it's, uh, the Airstream trailer of the future because it's completely, it's got like a wind turbine attached to it. It's got solar panels. It collects rainwater that then goes in that they think it's like filtered. Uh-huh. So you have fresh water. It's a completely, uh, self-sustaining pod that runs for like 70 grand and you can like bring it like a pickup truck. You can haul it out sure, into sure. the middle of nowhere, just drop it and you can live in it for, you know, and I'm, so I'm thinking to myself, that sounds like, great. right? Yeah. Like, that's what I want. Oh, just, like it sounds terrifying, but it sounds, it sounds great. I would, I would try that. <laughs> Car- Carmen's next story is going to be called the pod. Right. <laughs> And what happens when whoever goes in emerges? And when a half of a rabbit is found outside yeah. of the, the door every morning. That is weird. Half of a rabbit. Yeah. That's I mean, I'm assuming it was visual. some sort of just wild bird that just like 
dropped it off there. Oh, and then the worst part. Sorry, I didn't even tell you the worst part, which was that like I saw it. I was like, well, that's terrifying. And I like went inside. Was it the half with the head or the half with the... It was the, the lower half. Lower it was like half. half with the... Yeah, like with the tail. And then the next morning I woke up pretty early and it was still there. Like I woke up maybe at like 5.30 or 6 and it was still there. And I was like, hmm. So I like made some coffee. And when I went back and looked after like 15 minutes, it was gone. So something dragged it away. I don't know what. Uh- <laughs> Good God. Yeah, it was a real experience. And I feel like... I don't know, but I, I, I love it. I really love it. <laughs> so, okay. So you write this, you write this collection. A lot of them, a lot of them, um, happen for you at residencies. And then you go out to market. Mm-hmm. Your agent takes this book out. Talk about the sales process. Cause the, you know, the, I think it's gotten a little better actually with essay collections. Has it gotten better with short stories? It's always been a pain in the ass to sell a collection of short stories. I mean, I think it's still kind of a pain in the ass. Um, I mean, even finding an agent was very difficult. Like I had a lot of agents who, but you you're know, so decorated. Your Iowa writers workshop, you're the Mishner fellow. Like you've done, like you've done basically every residency you've gotten, <laughs> you've gotten every credential that a young writer could want. I mean, so my agent actually sort of picked me up. He like contacted me. And so I was, I was in grad. I mean, I was just finishing up with grad school or maybe I just finished. Um, and he read something of mine online and really liked it. And, you know, I, I, I'd worked with, I'd met a lot of agents. I'd like given them my work. And a lot of them said, this is really interesting. Like when you have a novel, come back to me. Um, and I was feeling very discouraged and I was like, man, I'm never going to be able to like, I'm going to like fake my way through a novel to like sell this collection that I really love, you know? Um, and I was really just feeling very down about it. And Kent reached out to me. And I was nervous. I was like Kent Wolf. Uh, he's at uh, the Friedrich Agency right now, okay. um, and he's lovely. And he's like my favorite. I mean, he's amazing. Um, but so he read something of mine that he really liked. He reached out to me. I said, "Well, here's some stuff that I've done um, that you ha- that like is not available online that you wouldn't have seen. Um, but I don't really have a book, and also they're all short stories. And I thought he'd be like, "Well, I'll come back to me when you have a novel." But he didn't. He was like, "Yeah, I want to work with you." Um, so I feel like his sort of he had this like vision for my career that like I didn't even have at that point. <laughs> like, uh, and then he took me on and, um, I sort of worked on the book slowly for a few years and, um, we finally got ready and I was sort of trying, I was like, maybe I will have a novel, like just to see if I could do it. But I, I couldn't, um, like I was really struggling and I don't think I'm like, as I mentioned, like, I don't think I'm the right writer right now to write like a, like a full length s- s- uh, novel. So, Anyway, so yeah, so I, I was working on that and finally we went out for submissions and it was, I mean, it was a similar process where the first round got lots of lovely notes from editors saying like, that's good. I love this, but I don't think I can make money on it. I don't think, I don't think we could sell it right? or like they liked it, but like, you know, marketing said no, yeah. or we already filled a short story quota for the year. That, you know, but they probably do. They probably have like a limited amount right? number no, of Right. No, exactly. Slots. I mean, so yeah, it was like hard because like they were just, they would send me these like really thoughtful, like deep, like being like, here's what I love about this collection, you know, and it'd be this like really thorough, thoughtful feedback. And then they'd be like, but I can't, you know, uh-huh. and I was feeling so discouraged. I was really like, maybe this is just not, cause I know people who like go on submission, they don't sell the book. And, um, so then we sort of took a break. I, I finished up that one story and stuck it in the manuscript. And then we did, went on, did our second rounds, which included a lot of like the large indies um, and some other people that we hadn't gotten in the first round. And um, and then one day my agent said, hey, uh, Ethan Nasowski Grill wants to talk to you. Um, and so we had this like amazing phone call. And Ethan just had, you know, I had this sense that he really had a vision for the book and it was very much in sync with mine. He was like, Here was, here's what I'm imagining. And he was like, I really want a tight, lean collection. 
I think we should take these three stories out, which actually were three stories that I had also thought about taking out. But it was like exactly the three stories that I've been like, I don't know. And he he like just like laser that's, vision. That's what you want. Yeah. And so everything he said, I was like, I am. Yes. I mean, yeah. Like, it sounds great. Um, and so then they made an offer on the book. And I have been. And this is Grey Wolf. This is Grey Wolf. Okay. Yeah. And I have been incredibly happy. I mean, they've been just amazing and i think the most amazing part is they they had a vision for this book that was like so complete and so thorough and they believed in it from the first moment and i feel really taken care of and also really seen in this way that's really nice because it's not so much about you know the marketing and i mean they just they like had a vision for it as a piece of art which i mean i recognize that like obviously with publishing there's obviously there's a marketing part of it like you have to sell the book right like that's part of it but you know, they're able to take risks that larger houses aren't, you know, because they're a nonprofit because they, you know, they, I mean, they just, they, they are able to take those risks. And I mean, I think it's, it's really paid off. Um, but I'm really glad that they, they believed in it. And I'm really glad my little book found a home because I found a good home, found a really great home. I'm now yeah. thinking that perhaps the, the half of the uh, dead rabbit was left at your doorstep by a wolf. Oh yeah. <laughs> let's you know let's go there. What's funny is I feel like, I feel like the wolf. So like Kent Wolf is my agent. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> gray wolf is my publisher. And also, you know, I have a law and order story, which is produced by Dick Wolf. So I feel oh, like there's uh there's wolves all around. There's you. wolves everywhere. It's like, that's my, become like my totem or something. It's your spirit animal. I know. <laughs> Speaking of spirit animal, you have tattoos. Uh, I do. You have tattoos on both of like your, your upper arm biceps. I do. And they're texts. Like, what do they say? So on my right arm, it says she didn't look back, but stepped off the edge of the known world which is the last line of kelly link's story flying lessons okay um i usually get tattoos every time i move so i have a compass on my back that i got when i left college and went to um went to california where i lived for a few years i lived in the bay area right after school after college was over um and then when i moved to iowa um i got this no wait hold on what's your font what, what are we dealing with here? this is Caslon, and actually this is the font of my book oh it when is. they asked me what i wanted i said is there any way to do Caslon? because that's what i have on my arm and they were like yeah <laughs> and i was like yay <laughs> so Caslon. it's just a really cool thing um so yeah and then this one on my left arm says never grow a wishbone daughter where your backbone ought to be which is a quote from clementine paddleford who was this like really badass like female food writer in like the 40s and she was the first person to write like an American cookbook where she like went all over the country and like had like a, like regional recipes. Um, and she, on the back of her, her book, there was this like awesome, like silhouette of this like woman in like a very smart coat and hat, like with a suitcase and she's like travel or a like, briefcase and she's like traveling, like she's walking. Um, so yeah, so that was one of hers. That one I got when I went from California to Iowa, the Kelly link quote I got when I went from Iowa to Philadelphia. So why a tattoo every time you move just to mark time? Yeah. I mean, now I think I actually, there's tattoos that I want. I'm no plans on moving anytime soon. So I'm like, you well, gotta, better move. I know, right? I now I'm think I'm just going to like do it, you know? <laughs> well, so I was waiting because I, you know, all my tattoos are fairly easy to cover and I kind of wanted to wait to get anything that could potentially be like not covered. Um, face tattoo, <laughs> not a face, but like my wrist or something else where it's a little more obvious. Um, but I wanted to wait until I had sort of, it felt like I had established myself in a way where it wouldn't really matter if I had like a visible tattoo, which I know is like, seems kind of old fashioned. You can get just... like a tattoo of the other people podcast logo. on your neck. <laughs> Well, I think I'll tell you what I want next, which is there's this real, this quote from Shirley Jackson's the haunting of Hill house. Have you, have you read that? No. Oh, it's a, you should, it's a perfect novel. It's like my favorite in the whole world. Um, there's this amazing quote in there where she, the protagonist, Eleanor, who's this like very sort of 
fragile, um, very like peculiar woman who's like going to this haunted house. She stops at an inn um, and oversees this like family interaction at the table next to her where this little girl won't drink milk because um, there's a, and the mother's explaining to the to the waitress like she has a cup at home that she drinks from and, and she doesn't want to drink from this cup and it's a cup of stars like it has stars in the bottom so when she drinks the milk she sees her stars and so the little girl refuses to drink and um so they're having this interaction and eleanor begins to think like no like don't drink the milk like demand your cup of stars like you deserve your cup of stars and it's just like this beautiful scene that i just love so i really want to get a cup of stars um and i think i'm gonna do that on my wrist but yeah so literary tattoos yeah, mostly. Um, I mean, there's other, I don't know. Like, I, I just, I like tattoos. They're kind of addictive. They really are. You know, my parents, blame, all my siblings have tattoos, but I was the first one to get them. So my parents kind of blamed me for like breaking the seal, you know? <laughs> um, and now my brother has way more than I do. So it's like, well, now he's, that's, you know. I think I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to start getting tattoos when I'm like 70. I, you know, I think they're great. And I, people, I don't know. I feel like my family has lots of feelings about them and I'm like, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> so let's talk. I want to talk about your family. Uh, where are you from? You said you were, before we came on, you, you said you're from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Yeah. I'm from Allentown originally. What um, is that? That's like a steel town. Is that what it is? It's like uh, some, some... It used to be. It's not anymore. Um, yeah. Bethlehem steel closed in the eighties. Right. I think. And so actually the Billy Joel song, Allentown is actually about Bethlehem. This is the story I've heard is that it's actually about Bethlehem, but Allentown fit better in the song. What is like, Billy Joel doing writing about Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? I don't know, but I mean, it's, I mean, and the thing about Bethlehem, I mean, I mean not about, that he can't, I mean, I'm just saying right. like, <laughs> it doesn't strike me as a guy who's like hanging around steel towns. Like, you know, oh, it's, in, it's not sort of his persona though. That's sort of like working maybe, man. I think that's kind of his, you know, he, yeah, he, those are his characters. Right. Sure. 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 It's, it's, um, and by the way, I don't mean to sound like a dick. It's within, <laughs> within his creative like uh, authority to, you know, imagine the lives of people other than himself. Right. 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 Um, yeah, no, the, uh, but I mean, when we first moved there, I mean, I feel like that, you know, that area, that whole area, the Lehigh Valley was really struggling for a long time to recover from that because it unemployed, like, do you feel, do you feel that as a kid? Like, were you feeling the blight of like, you know, the, these factory closings and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, totally. And also like when my parents moved, so my parents moved there right before I was born and they were, cause they both met in Madison. They were living in Madison at the time, Wisconsin. And, um, my mother tells a story about how like people were, um, you know, saying to her like, Oh, Allentown, like I've heard, you know, it's very dire. Like they're, you know, being like, it's very dangerous. I, so the area was sort of, you know, really struggling. Um, and, uh, and I feel like I, yeah, I perceived that as a kid. Um, but it's now it's changed very much. Like Bethlehem has really bounced back. There's a lot of stuff going on there. I kind of feel the same. I feel I hear a good thing. I have this like vision of Pittsburgh being sort of like the next place on the East coast because the cost, and I say this in the context of the arts, sure, sure, because it's the cost of living is low, but it sort of has had to reinvent its, itself. It had to reinvent its economy, yeah. and I feel like there's just a there's a, a kind of a feeling of this is maybe fertile ground. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, well, Pittsburgh is on the opposite side of the state, so I don't go there super often because it's pretty far away. But oh, right. um, you're Philly. I'm Philly. Yeah, um, but Pittsburgh, yeah, and Pittsburgh's a great a great town. I mean, Philly is one of the last sort of East Coast cities where you can actually sort of afford to live. If you're like an artist and you're not making a ton of money, you can afford to live there. Um, I think like it's like Baltimore, Philly, and like I think like, that's it. <laughs> that's kind of it, you know. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, so I really love living in Philly. It's really nice. But yeah, like a lot of, I mean, a lot of Pennsylvania has really struggled to sort of bounce back from. And how many siblings do you have? 
I, I have two. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. So you're the eldest. I'm the oldest. You're yeah. the one getting tattoos and like charting the course. I for really them. am. I'm like the constant oldest child. I'm like totally neurotic and like always very. I was always very bossy as a kid. <laughs> like high achieving. Very high achieving. I'm sure my siblings of all who could could just talk your ear off about what kind of person I was as a kid. What kind of kid were you? Uh, I was super anxious. I which I is still true about me. Why? I was. Do you know why? I mean, I think I'm. I'm like biologically disposition like des wait that's not the right word disposition disposition yeah to like be nervous like i or, or anxious i just i'm very sort of highly panic like, attacks like that bad or is it not enough? it's it has been that bad though now i'm zoloft <laughs> it's great you, um, <laughs> you seem very level to me you know, the, oh like, thank you well, that's very sweet <laughs> i mean i think yeah i think it's gotten I, i've gotten it kind of under control it it often vacillates depending on like kind of what's going on in my life. So it was under control for when I was really little, it was hard. I kind of got under control. Then I had a lot of stuff going on a couple of years ago, or at this point it was like five years ago and it started to kind of get worse again. And I'm actually a total hypochondriac. So my anxiety tends to manifest in adulthood. It manifested as like this anxiety. I was going to die. I was really sick. Um, and it got to the point where it was kind of uncontrollable. And I, I was like, I, you know, I need to be, and I was like about to go to those residencies. And I was like, if I go to a residency and I spend the whole time just like curled up in a, the fetal position, like crying that I have cancer or whatever. Um, I, I'm not going to, I'm really mad at myself for like You're wasting that opportunity. I'm terrified of death. Um, so, so yeah, so I was fine. Like, I'm just going to like try some medication and it's been really working. Um, what do you like? Okay. So let me, uh, this is interesting to me. Uh, I understand anxious. I have some of that. Mm -hmm. you know, I think we all do. Yeah, sure. It's sort of the human condition, but yeah. it, it can ratchet up for some people to mm -hmm. maybe like unmanageable levels. But like, I notice it in myself as like this subtle undercurrent. I also notice it physically as like this tightness in my chest. I think I've mentioned this before on the show, but like, it's the way it manifests. And if I'm actually paying attention, I'm like, wow, that's sort of always there. Yeah. And like, I can kind of feel it in my body. I can feel it yeah. now. It's like kind of in my arms a little bit. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell is that? It's like yeah. just some sort of human hardwiring anticipation of future, uh, some sort of sadness about the past. Like it's all just sort of buried in there. And, uh, it, you know, a lot of times I'm on autopilot and I don't realize it's yeah. there and it just, maybe it's informing everything I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like I, for example, like I, a couple, when I was like in my mid 20, no early twenties, I real, I was starting to develop like a popping in my jaw and I went to the doctor and they were like, Oh, so you clench your jaw. And you need to have like a night retainer, just like very sexy. Um, Nothing <laughs> sexy. Maybe a headgear. Maybe headgear. Headgear, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but they're like, we're gonna get you this like very expensive, like really expensive, like mouth guard that you have to wear. Like six thousand dollar mouth guard. It was like it, the insurance didn't cover it. It was like it wasn't six thousand, but it oh. was a lot. And I, I remember. Um, and then suddenly after they said that, I realized, like, I started to notice it, and I realized that I clenched my jaw constantly if I was like dreading something if i was just like thinking or like in a headspace like i would be like my jaw would just be like locked in position and so now i'm aware of it so i tend to kind of like every so often i have to kind of like like kind of you know open it up and kind of like let it stretch out because otherwise it'll just it'll get really bad and if i don't wear my mouth if i don't wear the mouth guard at night the next day i have like a horrible headache i mean it's like really bad so i feel like i feel like it, and i have tension in my shoulders and my body like yeah i feel like there's that the, the physicality is like my body is kind of tense like i'm about to be hit you know um and I think that's just sort of like that undercurrent, like running through of just like anxiety. Um, Did you have experiences like when it comes to hypochondria? Um, do you have an, like a deep understanding? Have you been through therapy or have you read up on it as to why this manifests in certain people? Like, did you have experience with 
illness at close range as a child? Was there an experience that informed it? Uh, so I, when I was a kid, I read a lot of medical thrillers, a lot of Robin Cook, a lot of this uh, Lorraine McDaniel, who is this like, she wrote like these terrifying um sick sicklet it was like there was this 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 the quartet. Bi- it's called like the biopsy <laughs> no that those were called i want to live like oh there was this God. there was this quartet of stories about this about this girl dawn who had leukemia oh. and it was just this like agonizing like journey through like her finding out she has leukemia how old, almost, how old are you when you're reading this oh like seven i mean <laughs> i and also i was a very precocious reader because i i would read like way by my age my age range and so not only were they not appropriate for probably even an older version of me, I was reading them at like a really young age. And like I read Robin Cook, who I don't know if you ever read any of his books. I mean, they're terrible, but they were these like medical thrillers that I was really into. And there's this one coma, which is all about like people being put into comas to like harvest their organs. Um, Wasn't that made into a movie? I think it was. Yeah. It came out in like the 70s, 80s. Yeah. And so I, I'll never forget, like I had to have this like minor surgery when I was a kid. And when I was like 13 or 14 and the day doctor, like I had a consultation the day before the doctor like, do you have any questions for us? Anything you want to ask about? And I said, if you're going to harvest my organs, please make sure I'm dead first. And the doctor was like, excuse me. <laughs> and the nurse was like, oh, does she read Robin Cook? Like, like the nurse knew my mom was just sitting there like, oh my God. Like, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, so I just was really into that sort of st- Stuff. I mean, I've always been drawn to the things that freak me out. And I think that's very much at the core of like my writing and my personality and like a lot of things about me as a person. Um, cause I love Your taste in residencies. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. So I really like, I like to think that that sort of literate, that, you know, also, also I'll never forget. Oh my God. Reading the hot zone by, um, Oh God, Richard Preston. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember like, I'll never forget. Like I was, and also I'd read at night, you know, I'd read under the covers with my flashlight. And I remember like finishing the hot zone being like, what? And then turning it over. I'll never forget. I had somehow missed the terrifying true story. And I was so freaked out. I was like, yeah, that was just, and there was some blurb from like Bill Clinton. It was like the scariest book I've ever read. Stephen King. He's like the first chapter of the hot zone is the most terrifying thing I've ever read or something. I remember there being a blurb from Bill Clinton on there. Maybe but so. you know, see, I believe Stephen King's. I mean, I believe that. I mean, it was, it was, and it, that was the part that was the worst. It was like the guy who was on the plane. And he's like vomiting yes, blood yes. into the back. <laughs> like I remember this so clearly. <laughs> I haven't too. read it in decades. Yeah. And like, you know, it's just a, it's just funny. So yes, I feel like I have all these weird touchstones that still like linger in me. Which is like, it's like, why would you? And why, like, why would you keep reading things that upset you if it made you feel that way? But like, there was something. It's a way of facing it. It is, and it made me. feel it it made me feel, which sounds really cheesy, but like I, I, you know, it was like it provoked a reaction in me. I feel like I've always had a great respect for art that provokes a reaction in me. All right, changes your temperature. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like in in various ways, if it makes me cry, if it makes me feel despair, if it makes me like overjoyed, if it makes me terrified, like I, 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 res- I just have a real respect for that. Um. And I think that that has been the way that in that that way since I was a kid. And that's what you're trying to uh, recreate in your own art. I think, people. yeah, I think so. I mean, that's you know, it's funny because I feel like sometimes I'll read books. I mean, I'm sure you, you've experienced this. You read a book and you're just like, okay, right? Like it's like you've read it. Your temperature. I like that. Your temperature has not changed. You're just like, okay, like that was a book. I read it. Eh, you know, there's it, but like you don't have a feel. And so I feel like I read books like that, and it just makes me really cranky because I'm like. 
I don't feel any different afterwards. Um, and I don't, and I think that's just, unfortunately, just like, there are books like that. There's art, I mean, there's movies that there's all kinds of art like that. Um, and then there are, there are that just like turns your head upside down, you know, and that's what I want. And so you are reading way above your grade level. You're reading stuff that most seven-year-olds probably either wouldn't be able to read or would have no interest in reading because right. it's terrifying <laughs> and death obsessed. Um, and so it sounds like you were kind of like a writer from like right out of the shoot. Like, was this something you were thinking about back then? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was writing, but like, yeah, it's like, I mean, my, I've always wanted to be a writer in some capacity. I mean, I read so intensely. I mean, I would write poems and stories and I would send them to publishers. Like I had a teacher who taught us how to write like formal letters when I was maybe in like second grade or third grade. And, um, so I, I figured this out. I was very excited. And my, my godmother had given me, uh, customized stationery. It had jungle animals on it and it had like the envelopes that had my name and my address on it and everything. And so I would, I would write letters to publishers cause I would find their addresses inside of, this um, is adorable books. by the way. <laughs> so like other, like I, I, I read a lot of the babysitters club books. So scholastics like address was in the inside. And so I would write letters. I'd be like, dear scholastic, like this is the first chapter of my novel. Um, I would like this illustrator, who's always the illustrator who illustrated the Babysitter's Club covers, uh, to <laughs> illustrate my cover. Please let me know if you would like more. And, like, I would sign it and I would like, send these like, Did they out. write you back? Well, the never I never got one from a publisher, though. My my wife, who is in publishing, says that she's sure some like intern was like beyond delighted and like probably hung it up in their like cubicle, you know. Um, but I also wrote to authors and usually I write like care of the publisher, which I had also I was like, care of, you can write like I it just blew my mind. I was like, correspondence is magic. Um, and obviously this is like pre-email. So, um, so yeah, so I remember I went through also like a, like a Holocaust book phase. Like I just devoured like every book about the Holocaust I could find. And there was this one book called I Have Lived a Thousand Years by Livia Bitten Jackson. Um, and, uh, and sh she, and I was just moved by it tremendously. And like she talked about, she was like a young girl. It was written for young people. So by it was the way, like, if, if you write a book about the Holocaust that doesn't change a person's temperature, like right. there's no hope for you. <laughs> Right, exactly, no but I, I, but what really the thing about that book that really upset me, it wasn't even just the Holocaust. I mean, it was that Holocaust, but it was like she had written all these poems in a book when she was a child, and the Nazis came, took her family away, and I was like, what happened to her poems? Like, where are her poems? Did she have her poems? Did she get them back? Like, I was like really troubled. I think because I had read Little Women. And the plot line, which still to this day upsets me the absolute worst in Little Women, is I've when... I've never read Little Women. Am I a bad person? It is amazing. Okay. I love that book. I love it. And I've reread it as an adult, and it, it's fin I think it's fantastic. Um, but I had read it, and I read it multiple times, and I really loved it. Also, there's a lot of like death in there, and I mean... But uh, <laughs> and a lot of just really funny... Like just It's just a funny book, and it's just... I think I responded very much to also, like... It's about, like, women's lives, you know, which I just really, really... Even as a young person, like, really responded to. Um, but anyway, so the... Um, uh, there's a plot, a plot line in there where Amy, the youngest sister, who's kind of a brat, takes Joe. Jo so Joe is sort of the author insert character, and she's a writer, so she's like constantly working on like novels and a, a novel like throughout the the book. And um, Amy gets very angry because like she's, I think they, they they don't take her to a party or something. She's very upset. So Joe comes back and she's looking for her manuscript, and Amy has thrown it in the fire, and it's like burning up in the fire. It's like the only copy because it's you know eighteen whatever. So. Yeah, that was a lot of pressure back then. Right, exactly. It's like you only have the one copy and like, you know, it's like burning in the fireplace. Oh. And I, I remember just being horrified. And then like later, and then like Joe gets really mad at Amy. And then later Amy goes through the ice 
uh, they're skating and she goes to the pond and Joe saves her and that's when they kind of reconcile. Uh, but I was like, she should have let Amy drown because Amy <laughs> burned her book to a crisp. Like I was just like so outraged. Anyway, so this idea of like your art being taken away from you like irrevocably was like utterly horrifying to me. I mean, even as a young, like, and I was like, I was very young when I read that book and I, I was just really upset by that. So this idea that like this girl had been taken away, not only the Nazis taken her family to <laughs> away, but also her poems got left behind and like what happened to her poems. So I wrote this like letter to like, Ben Jackson where I told her I'd read her book and I really wanted to know if, if she'd ever gotten her poems back. And so like maybe a month or two later, my mother comes in and she says, there's a letter for you from Israel. <laughs> and she's like, who is writing to you from Israel? And I still have it. Um, I still have it in my files and she'd written back and she said that my publisher forwarded your letter to me. I live in Israel now, um, you know, to answer a question, I did not get my poems back, but obviously I like went out and wrote a bunch of books and it was fine, you know? And, um, and it was like, she had reached back and there was something like, so, so magical about that. And I, there's nothing better than a letter in the mail. There's an, it's true. I, okay. My wife makes fun of me. I love getting mail. It's like my favorite thing. And it's hard because like nowadays, like so much comes online, right? It's like, you, you don't get a lot of like letters in the mail. Um, but to receive a letter back from an author, there was something just so thrilling about that. And it just felt really good. So like, I do my best, like even when people email me, like I always try to respond, even if it's just like a couple lines, because I feel like that feeling of being like, someone's reached out to you to say like something about your work moved me or like I... You know, it's like, that's really beautiful. And I think that, you know, like, I believe that text is its own doorway. So like, one day, like, I will die. And like, if people hopefully are still reading my book after my death, that's the doorway, right? Like, I wrote a thing, somebody maybe who hasn't even born yet might one day read that book. And then that's really cool, right? But like, while well, it's, like, I, it's like Borges says, like, you know, writers get reincarnated as books. Exa right, exactly. But like, at the same time, there is a real pleasure to like, somebody actually being alive, being able to say like, Hey, your work really moved me. Or like, I have a question about something that you wrote or like it really provoked, it changed my temperature. You know? Or Hey, your podcast helped me procrastinate. And <laughs> when I was supposed to be writing. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, the, uh, so I, I feel like something really magical about that. And I, I just remember that being really special, um, when I was a kid and yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah anybody you, like you look up to writes you back or give, you know, gives yeah. you the time of day. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you're writing all throughout youth. You're a hypochondriac reading like m terrifying medical novels. Um, you, you live in Allentown, Pennsylvania. You are an adolescent. You're high school. Uh-huh. What do you like then? Oh, I'm so weird. Uh, I mean, I was a real weird kid. I like, was a we weird teenager. I was very religious. Um, what kind of religion? Uh, I so I was raised United Methodist, um, which is a fairly like middle of the road, like not particularly... Methodists are very sort of committee committee based and, you know, um, but I sort of, I, I would say I fell in with a group of evangelicals, like it was a gang, but I, I fell in with like the sort of the Bible study group at my church, which was like mostly, which mostly had kids who were evangelical, came from sort of like more radical Protestant um, denominations. And so I was just in this very weird place where the concept of God, I love this. I'm going to use this forever. Change my temperature. Like the concept of God, I was like, there's something just so interesting about that. And I think I sort of sensed that like there was something else out there and like, why not this? Um, and so I responded to it from, from, you know, a pretty young age and, but, but it was always hard because even at my most religious, like I was like, guys, I don't think God hates gay people. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. And did you know you were gay then? 
Mm, not consciously, no. Okay. Um, but I was like, that doesn't make any, I was like, that doesn't, that doesn't jive with like what I seem to understand about God. Uh, and I also was like, you know, I don't think evolution and like God are like incompatible. You know, I feel like I was still, I was sort of getting that more moderate influence from like my parents, like my parents were both like religious, but not my, like my dad was sort of like, he studied theology and was like very, I mean, he's a chemist, but he was like reading a lot of books. And so I feel like I never went like full to the other side, but it, it was really informing me. And I, I went to like a camp where I thought I'd like found Jesus and I like did a campfire con- conversion. You're and, speaking like, in tongues? No, no, not, no, that's more like, uh, Baptist. No, like, um, uh, oh my God. Pentecostal. Oh, Pentecostal. Yeah, 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 it's like yeah. a different, yeah. But, um, so yeah, but, but it, I just, I think I just wanted to feel, again, it was like that desire to like have a feeling, like the desire to like be in touch with something sort of bigger and more, um, maybe that strangeness that I felt had like this, this source, like this, maybe this was the source of like my feelings about just like life, you know? Um, so yeah, so I, I was like that way. I mean, basically that was through college. I mean, and then sort of mid college, I was like, I figured out I was queer. I was like, well, where'd you go? Where'd you go to college? American university in Washington, DC. I wanted to be a journalist uh-huh. or that was the idea that I had. And of course, like I did like a semester or two of journalism and I was like, I don't want to do this at all. <laughs> this is terrible. So I like quit, um, and, and became, uh, did end up being like a photography major. Um, but yeah, but the, um, and how did you, and you figured out you were queer in college? Like that's like when it, yeah, you know, I didn't know really. I, yeah. Like I, I, I think in high school, I, it was weird because it was like, I, had a I had crushes on girls, but I didn't. It's like I couldn't connect that. Like I didn't somehow didn't connect. Like I want to kiss her, that friend of mine, to like, oh, you're queer. Um, by, by the way, as a straight dude, using the word queer, like I, I, I feel a little bit of discomfort. Like there was something like pejorative about that when I was a kid. Like you're queer, sure, you know. Sure, but sure. like it's acceptable to use that. You know what's funny is I recently had this experience where I was talking to somebody from like a generation kind of above mine, and they had a similar reaction to that word. Um, you I mean, me, it's... you call me old. <laughs> I recently had a conversation with an old man. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, no. The I mean, I think the yeah. I mean that that is my that's my identity. Like I identify as queer. I think. Yeah. Obviously, like, I think for some people, even for my, my my mom, I remember my mom, like, being weirded out when I said that. She's like, I don't like to say that word. And I was like, that's fine. I mean, you could call me bisexual, but I also don't really like that. I don't like that label. I prefer queer. But whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely has, like, a – it. even when I was a kid, I guess it had sort of more of a pejorative uh, uh, sort I'm, of tone. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, anyway, so, yeah. So, I sort of, like, didn't quite make that connection when I was in high school. And then I got to college and I met my really good friend, Anne, who – was identified at the time as bi and I, and now does not identify as just a lesbian, but, um, and she was amazing. She was a really close friend. And, uh, you know, we, um, I feel like I sort of felt empowered to like seize my identity in this way because of our friendship. And, um, and I was like, I'm, I'm bisexual. Like I'm, you know, um, yeah. And then I sort of was you know, thinking a lot about faith and oh, I was kind of going through a lot of stuff. And I was like, you know, were you still on the Jesus, like you're a religious in the, be- in the beginning. Yeah. And then at some point I just, I, you know, a lot of stuff was going on and I had some weird experiences with the church and I'm just sort of like, you know, like, I don't like what, um, I mean, I'd had this like very weird in a inappropriate relationship with somebody sort of in the, in the church who was like a, like a, like a faith leader uh-huh. and not 
like sexual exactly, but it was just this very like inappropriate, in retrospect, actually an incredibly inappropriate relationship that it took me like years to kind of like fully kind of understand. Um, so there was that going on and, and I just like, couldn't, I couldn't reconcile like what I knew about myself, what I knew about the world with, you know, God as like a concept. And it doesn't mean that I, I mean, I sort of did this really great interview with um, Commonweal Magazine, which is like a Catholic magazine. Um, and the, the interviewer was like really brilliant and we had this like great talk. And I, I sort of described it as like, I still feel like the universe has this like, this like something is, is happening but it, it, to me, it's like unknowable. It's like even if the universe has like a like a like its own energy or its own whatever, there's no way for me to access that, and it does not. It in no way does it impact my life or my choices like a, a moral person, right? Like it's just the universe is twitching its flanks to discourage flies. You know, it's like I don't. That, that's not relevant to me. Um, besides, it's like a feeling. Um, so I don't really I don't really believe in like supernatural things or which is funny because again, like I love horror. Like I'm so interested in that space, but I I'm more into that space as like a a sensation in my own body as opposed to believing that like, like I could an ideology see exactly exactly so so do you think like in retrospect that maybe you get into because i can see like i can kind of remember being an adolescent and being open or searching you know sure. like, like that searching thing is very natural at that age yeah but i'm thinking also of like your hypochondria and this fear of death from earlier in your childhood mm-hmm. and wondering if like maybe you were trying to temper that or find some sort of answer you know what i'm saying because like if you have a religion yeah like isn't that a big part of what religion does it helps us like come to peace with the fact of our own mortality and like we think we're going to go to heaven and we have like a there's like a plan yeah but i feel like what what made it so hard, i mean yes but also it, it, it's so prescriptive that it becomes like even if you even if i were religious and i believed like oh you know you have to believe in xyz thing and like you'll go to like you know heaven or some some place that's like good ish right um <laughs> heaven is good ish good ish you know yeah. it's like not hell basically or whatever <laughs> like that still means that like you could be making the wrong choice right like you could be like what if you're making the wrong what if you've made the wrong decision and it's like you know and i it just seems like arbitrary in this way that almost is more terrifying <laughs> you know it's like it's like you could be putting your eggs in precisely the wrong basket so why, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. And it just, it, and it just, and also I, I just, I don't know. I just feel like it wasn't the way I wanted to conduct my life. Like I want to conduct my life with like what I perceive as my own intellectual integrity, which is not to say that anyone who believes in God or is religious, like does not have that, but like for myself, like I can't bring myself to like believe a thing that I don't believe. Yeah. Um, and that's a very important to me as a person. So I don't identify as an atheist exactly, but I'm just sort of like, it's not agnostic. I guess it's like, it's just, it's, if there's something, it's not relevant to me. Like I'm, I'm making choices about my behavior and my life and who I am as a person. Like that's not, is no way is that any of that stuff have any bearing on like what I'm, how I'm living my life. What do you think happens when we die? I think probably just our consciousness blinks out. This is a good moment. For a good <laughs> It'd be funny if we just ended the episode. Right I know, now. right? <laughs> It's the last beat. It's like, thank you. for. <laughs> That's it. We, we got it. We just got it right there. But, um, okay. So you are in college. You're mm-hmm. going through, you know, I don't know, all the processes that people in college go through. You're sort of like, uh, experimenting, figuring out who you are, uh, changing your major, mm-hmm. writing, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, throughout I was writing. I mean, I I was taking creative writing classes with this like really amazing, my professor, Harvey Grossinger, who's this writer, really amazing writer. And he had a fiction workshop and I just took it like over and over again. I just took like four iterations of that class um, and just kept workshopping new work. And um, so I was writing throughout, even though it wasn't, you know, it was just the sort of thing I was doing on the side. But it's like I never wanted to stop doing that. Like it was important to me to be taking a creative writing class. It's a real, it's a real pleasure for you to do the work. Oh, I love writing. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I know a lot of people for whom writing is like, like writers for whom writing is unbelievably torturous. And I do not feel that way. Like when I'm writing, I, f- it's pleasurable. It's like a, it's like eating a good meal. It's like, feels really good. And I mean, if I'm on deadline or I'm feeling, even when, even if I'm feeling stressed out, like it's like, I got to finish something. Like it's still pleasurable to me. Hmm. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's very convenient. You know? like, what do you I think, think it'd be you... hard if I really hated it, you know? Well, but you get to, uh, I feel like that, like there's like a sense of play for people who are able to do the work and enjoy it. Like there's something almost childlike, creative. You're in that space where you can just make stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, you do, it's not, it doesn't come loaded with all of this. I don't know ego garbage or right. I mean, fear or whatever it is that plagues people like me. I mean, know? I know I do think that like it is, it is play. I and mean, when you're a kid, like that instinct for narrative is in you inherently. It's what makes kids like take like a, you know, a water bottle and a plastic dinosaur and make them like talk to each other. You know, it's like you have that instinct automatically. And then I think people get it beaten out of them, you know? And I feel like as for me, there's animals on the roof of the garage. Oh, there is. What was that? That was so scary. It's just a rabbit being attacked by a. <laughs> oh, that was. Ooh. Um, it, was, it, just, it sounded loud. It didn't sound like a squirrel. It sounded like something else. That was like super creepy. It's just a bobcat. <laughs> um, I forget what I was. Oh, right. Um, so I've got that sense of play is really important. And if people get kind of beaten out of them and as a writer, it's really important to me. And what I make my students do when I teach is like, you need to like access that sense of play. Like, that, like when you're out in the world, there's this sense of like narrative potential. So like if you see something on the ground or you overhear a conversation, like there's, there's this, this like quantum energy around it where it's like, you can imagine the scene and then like put some, your own narrative into it. Um, and that's, being a creative person and that can manifest in all kinds of ways. Like you don't just have to be a writer. Like you could just be like a creative person who just like has that sense of play and potential. Those like, um, what are the cells that can be anything stem cells, right? Where it's like anything can be anything and you can kind of like have that pliability. Um, and I think that's really important. And I think people, a lot of people lose that and it's really sad. Um, so, but for me, it's like really important to have that. And I think that that, because I keep that really, that really fresh, I feel like, how do you keep it fresh? I just sort of train my brain. I let myself have fancies. I let myself have like daydreams and I mean, fantasy sounds really weird, but like, you know, I feel like I let my mind kind of do what it wants to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky in that. Like I live the kind of life where that's possible. Like I think a lot of people like, you know, if you're working a certain kind of job or like there's all these circumstances under which I think it becomes harder to do that. And I, yeah. I'm very lucky in that I'm very privileged and I don't have to do that in this part, part of my life. Um, but I just sort of let my brain do what it wants to do and like respect it as its own entity. I mean, it's my, it's my subconscious. Like it's just, I'm letting it do what it wants um, for the most part. And in a way that is like synchronous with my life. So what does a typical day in your life look like? Um, like a work day, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, take us through sure. a day. Uh, I usually wake up uh, <laughs> relatively early. Oh, I was one day, hopefully I wake up. Most days I wake up. <laughs> um, I usually do some sort of like, 
I don't want to call it yoga because it's not yoga. I just like stretch and kind of just get all the kinks out of my body in the morning. I make coffee. I drink coffee while, um, well, it sort of depends. If it's a, a, a teaching day, I'm usually getting up and like prepping for class. Um, if it's like a more leisurely day, I'm getting up and I'm reading or I'm, you know, doing something like that. Um, if I'm teaching, I mean, I go to campus and I'm usually prepping until I teach. Then I teach. Once I teach, I'm exhausted and I can't really do much creatively after that. I usually just like go home and I'll like make dinner or watch some TV or like play a video game. I love video games. So I play a video game. What do you play? Oh God, what don't I play? Uh, right now I'm playing Fallout 4, which is taking me a million years. Um, I really love... Is there a narrative? Because I'm totally out of the video game thing. Like, are, are there, is there a narrative component? Yeah, like, Fallout you- 4 has a narrative. Yeah, um, I prefer... Sort of the games I prefer, I prefer uh, R- RPGs. Um, what does that mean? Real player, person... Uh, Oh, it's uh oh my god! Don't ask me that. <laughs> is there, does it mean there's a gun or no? Not necessarily. It just means that you're. It, so it means like you're you're sort of like on an open map and you're kind of going around and like doing what you what you want and like. Okay. I think of it as like or like questing, but okay. I mean like so I'll play like fantasy games where it's like you're like questing to do various things or like Fallout Four is basically that, but with like a, a science fictional premise as opposed to like a fantasy premise. All right. Um. So that's like Fallout Four is set like after like an, uh, a nuclear apocalypse. Um, <laughs> So that's like a gun, like a shooting game. Yeah. Um, but then I also really like sort of like fun, like indie. So like I really love like Life is Strange, which is this like beautiful game that came out a couple years ago where you're like a teenager at an arts an arts high school and it's like set in the Pacific Northwest and it's like beautiful. Um, so yeah, so I'm really wait, into... Wait, 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 wait. This is a video game? Yeah. Oh, Sounds yeah. like a Gus Van Zandt movie. It is. It's like that in a vid- in video game form. <laughs> and it's amazing. It's like really... And she, the, the protagonist discovers that she can uh, manipulate time. And so you're sort of like, I don't really want to give too much away, but it's, it's, if you like, if you're like, like, it's a kind of game where like, if you're not, if you're like, I don't want to like shoot things or kill things. I mean, yeah. I like shooting and killing things in video games as much as the next person, but if I'm not in the mood for that, or if I want to play something different, um, that's like a game that I really love. There's a game I played last year called Until Dawn or Till Dawn, Until Dawn, Till Dawn, one of those things. Um, it's like a horror movie, just like a horror movie in game format. And it was like so fun. So yeah, so I really like. I don't know. I like, I like a pretty wide range of things. Um, just like pure shooters or just like, I don't know. Like there's a certain kind of shooter. I don't really like where it's just kind of like, what's the one like grand theft auto where like, there's like, like people raping people. And it's like, just this like, really. I have not grand. Theft, I've watched people play grand theft auto. And what I think is really interesting about it is it's like this crazy world building. Like it's just like so huge. It's like this massive map, which is its own sort of really impressive feat. I mean, I don't really know. I haven't really played it. So I don't know much about it um, beyond that, but there's, yeah, so some games I'm just like, eh, like, you know, I just don't, I'm just like, I'll try to play it. And I'm like, I'm bored. Like, I need, like, a story. I need something, you know. Um, but, yeah, so I'm I'm just really, I don't know. But the thing about video games is that I find them very helpful for my anxiety because they sort of flatten out my brain. Like, I'm not, because, like, when I'm reading, I'm thinking. Like, my brain is, like, super active. When I'm playing a video game, I, I'm not. So it's like, I can't read if I'm feeling, if I'm having, like, an anxiety because, it's just going to feed it. Like it's just going to make it worse. Um, but video games I can play and I'm just sort of like checked out. So like, it's very pleasurable in that sense where it's like, I don't have to like, it's like, I get to like kind of check away from my brain a little bit, which is really nice. Sort of like watching TV, but yeah. Yeah. I know on TV is another way I do that too. But, um, what do you watch on TV? Oh, I love TV. Um, let's see right now I'm watching brick and Morty, which I'm obsessed with. Um, What is that? Oh, only the greatest show on television right now. It's (laughs) an animated, sort of science fictional i don't know how to describe it it's like it's animated it's science fiction 
it's this very playful, very dark, Rick and very Morty. existential. Yeah, it's called Rick and Morty. Um, I don't really know how to describe it. It's it's my absolute favorite. My wife and I are really obsessed with it, and it's tremendous. Where do you watch it? We just uh, stream it. But I mean, like, what 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 network is it? I think it's cart. Oh, don't quote me on this. I think it's Cartoon Network, but I'm not sure because I just stream it on. I just stream it because we just we we're, we cut the cord, you know, oh, the you cables. Did. So we're just like it would sell on one of our streaming services. Millennials, you're cutting cords. I know, right? <laughs> um, yeah, we don't have cable because just what's the point? But um, BoJack Horseman, which is another animated show that I really love. Um, what is? I hear a lot of people talking about BoJack Horseman. It's another like it, it's it's basically it's sort of like a it's a, it's actually it's set in L.A. It's like this um, very dark animated sitcom about this like washed up actor, but all the characters are animal are animals like animal people. So like he's like a horse, like a bipedal horse, um, and it's really funny because it's like this very brilliant, really great written, this like incredible sort of portrait of depression. It's a really, really good show. And also there are like tons of my favorite kind of joke in the whole world are jokes where animal characters who normally act more or less human do an animal thing. So like my favorite, like I love it when like Brian on Family Guy, I hate Family Guy, but I've seen episodes of Family Guy that I've really cracked up at because like when Brian does like a dog thing, you know, even though he's like mostly this like, you know, New Yorker reading, like martini swilling, you know, like liberal elite, whatever. But then like sometimes he'll just like, you know, lick his own genitals or like you know, scratch it behind the ear or whatever. And I think I don't know why I find those jokes so funny. So what Jack Horseman is a lot of like, you know, it's just a very like smart, funny, dark show. And then every so often, like, you know, a bird, like, there'll be, like, a pigeon in a suit, like, commuting to work, and he'll, like, hit a window or something, you know? <laughs> so it's just, like, there's something, I just, lo- I don't know why those jo- I find those jokes hilarious. I just, like, I crack up, like, uncontrollably <laughs> every time. <laughs> this is one of those. Um, so, yeah. So I'm watching that. Um, I love Jane the Virgin. It's a show and also that my wife and I watch. We really love. Um, it's really seeing like some Latina representation on television. Um, and Gina Rodriguez is like fucking amazing, and that show is like very smart and very funny. Um, that sounds good. You yeah, got, you've got yeah. a lot. You got a lot going on. I do. I do. I'm. A, I am a sort of avid. I love media. I feel very lucky. I mean, I just sort of wish I had more time in my day to like. You know, it's like one of those things where it's like, it's like a surfeit of riches, right? It's like, I can't play all the video games and watch all the shows I want to watch because like I would never do anything else. And I wouldn't even, I wouldn't be able to do it if I did it 24 hours a day, you know? Um, but I, I, yeah, I love, I love watching shows. So uh, before I let you go, back to your book. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when did you... Write my book. <laughs> yeah, I think. The reason we're sitting here. Uh, when did you know or when did you start to get a sense that the reception for it was going to be unique? I mean, the thing about my career that's been kind of not unique, but I think different than a lot of other writers is that I've been publishing my stories and essays for like a minute. So unlike, say, like a novelist who like writes their first novel, hasn't really published anything else, and then the novel comes out where they're sort of like brand new on the scene in terms of like recognition, I've been publishing for a while. And so I've I've sort of been, I think, developing an audience long before this book ever was a thing. So I don't know. And so, so I think gray will start to get an inkling because they were just having, there was just a lot of interest like right off the bat, um, in a way that was very unusual for a debut and interest meaning what just like people get in touch with them saying like, we would like a review copy, uh. um, where they were like, we haven't even begun to like reach out, but like people are reaching out to us to like get stuff about that, you know? Um, but yeah, because I've been, I've just been, and also I've been publishing a lot online, which actually, you know, it's funny, like in the lit world, 
right like it's more prestigious to, to print to have like a print magazine publication than like an online magazine but and like, there's like two of those left I mean, not more than two, but right. there's not a ton of print locations. You know, right, but like when I published The Husband Stitch, which is like the first story in the collection and it was probably one of my, one of my most well-known stories, Granta didn't put it in the print magazine. They put it online. It was only online. So theoretically, Granta putting my story online and not in a print magazine is like less prestigious. It's just like less, you know. They're like, is it okay if we just put it online? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, you're Granta. Like, that would be wonderful. Um, but people read it like way more people read it right. online than they would have read it in print. And so I was just getting like, I've, I've received probably like, I don't even know, 500 emails. I'm guessing about that story over the course of its life. It wow. was published like three years ago. Um, and infinitely more like tweets and all kinds of, you know, people just really responded to that story, but they read it because it was just like, you could be like, Oh my God, read the story and like post the link. And then it was just out there. Right. Viral. So, so I feel like, and I've had other like essays and things where it's been like a similar sort of arc where like it's been published and people really responded to it. And because it's been available online, it's just, there's more access. And so I think that actually has really helped my career. And I think I've developed, like I've just been doing that for like a while. I didn't plan it that way. Like it wasn't like some part of like <laughs> some large nefarious scheme. I just, that's sort of how my career evolved. And, um, and so, yeah. So then Grey Wolf started getting like a lot of interest, I think unusually early and we're just like, huh, interesting. Um, and then, yeah, it's just been growing ever since then. So, I mean, like, you know, I mean, I think I wasn't sure, like, what, you know, what the sales would be like. And I'm, I'm still not, right? Like, I still don't know, like, how it's going to go. But, like, I mean, this level of attention and, like, all the award nominations, like, obviously, this is, like, phenomenal and extremely exciting. I don't think I imagined it would be quite this intense, um, quite this much. But, obviously, it's, like, amazing and I'm super happy and grateful. Um, but I think what makes me even more happy, the awards obviously are amazing, but, like, you know, I've been doing events and like, I did an event at Skylight Books, uh, two days ago and it was like standing room only. And people came up and were just like buying multiple copies and we're just like, I love your work. I've been like waiting for this book for so long. I'm so excited. Um, you know, just all kinds of like amazing things that make me feel really, really seen and really grateful for just readers, you know, um, and having been, I mean, being a reader myself and like having said similar things to authors whose books I've got, you know, whose events I've gone to, like there's something really magical about that. Um, and like, I don't know, like people are messing with me and like, I tried to get your book and it's sold out, you know, at my local indie and I've, I, they have to order more. And I feel like that sort of, so that's even more exciting, I think, than the awards where it's like people are like super excited and like just respond to it and are like, here's how I responded to this thing that you Just like created. that one-to-one, -one, like when, when, yeah. a, when an individual reader tells you. Right. It's like, I forget who said this. I, I, this is not mine. I'm quoting somebody whose name I cannot remember was like, it's like my ghost is reaching out and touching their ghost. Like, it's like, there's something about like something that I made inside of me was like made manifest and then like was able to touch somebody, somebody's somebody, something that's inside of them. And like your ghost changed somebody else's ghost temperature. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. In a liminal way. In a liminal way. Exactly. Um, yeah. And there's something that's really like, it sounds so cheesy, but like, that feels really fucking magical. Like I made this weird thing in my head and, and it, and it made somebody, it changed their temperature, it made them feel something. And, and that's a really good feeling. And like, I don't, I feel unbelievably grateful for that. And like, yeah. And I, that, that I think is the sort of the best part. Um, so if you, if you have the national book awards, you're a finalist. I am a finalist. You're going to go to the show. I'm going to go to the show. I bought a dress already. Okay. <laughs> who, who will you be wearing? Oh God. It's this, um, 
called? Well, it's actually his website, uh, Pinup Couture, which I just love. And they are, or actually, I think it's Pinup Girl Clothing. I think they've had a different, they had, they've had a different name before, but I'd had my eye on this gold gown for like a really long time. And I was like, I have an excuse to buy it. <laughs> I'm going to do it. And I did. Yeah, well, and I'm a, really excited to good, wear it. It's a good reason to wear a gold gown. Exactly. Exactly. So if you win, like, do you care? Like, are you thinking about it? Like, you have to, if you get nominated for one of these awards, there's an actual show. Right. People are going to be there. You're gonna be, it's like the fucking book Oscars. I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I fantasized about it. Yeah. About winning. Of course I have. I mean, I think everyone, I don't, can't imagine one wouldn't, you like, know. Everyone who's going to be there as a finalist has been like, okay, what happens if I win? Right. Right. You, you have a, like, are you going to write a speech? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have some remarks. Prepared. Prepared. Yeah. Yeah. You practice in a mirror with like a hairbrush? I practice in front of my wife. Do you? <laughs> yeah, she's a good. Uh, we we do, we we're both. Write, she's a writer also, and we both like read to each other all the time. So, what, what does she do? She works in publishing. She think? works in publishing. She's a publicist at Running Press, okay. um, and she's also like working on this really beautiful, incredible historical YA novel um, that I really want to read. So, uh, yeah, she's like still, but it's like uh, historical, so a lot of research involved. Um, but yeah, we're each other's first readers. So, if I'm working on a story or an essay, like the sort of the incentive I have to finish that day is like, if I finish a draft, I can read it to Val tonight. Like that's what I get to do. And she has that with like chapters of her novel that she's working on. So yeah, we do this back and forth. So yeah, so she'll definitely hear my remarks many times. <laughs> You're gonna, if, like, if you win, would you, would you mind like just name checking me in your speech? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to have enough time. <laughs> the the orchestra is going to start playing. I know, I'm, right? Yeah. Exactly. They'll like kick a shepherd's crook and like grab it around Just my neck. when you're saying other people podcast, right. so it's going to be <laughs> drowned out by the uh, French horns. Yes. Um, well, I am so grateful to have a chance to talk to you while you're swinging through town. Thank you. Thank you. No, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really and appreciate I it. I wish you luck. And oh, we didn't get a chance. Uh, I wanted to ask you as well, because I'm from Indiana. Oh, Yeah. Your memoir is called The House in Indiana? It is. House in Indiana. Or yeah. House in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So, you, And you finished that? I draft is finished. It's not due to... The fu- the next version is not due to a gray until next year. And what's that about? You said a little bit of... I think I've read a little bit of a summary. Yeah. So it is a... It sounds... It sounds so ridiculous when I say it out loud. I'm really glad Grail already bought it because I feel like it's just... It's so ridiculous. It's, um, it is a memoir about same-sex abuse or abuse in a same-sex relationship, which is the topic that does not... I was going to say, I haven't read much about that. It's because it, there's not a lot of books about it, um, which is part of the reason that I am writing it. Um, it's a book... I mean, I always say that like you should write what you want to see in the world that you don't see. That's a kind of a general philosophy, and that's a book I wanted to see, and I looked for it, and it didn't exist. So I was like, well, I'm going to write it. Um, but yeah, so it's... And it's sort of told with these rotating lenses of various genre tropes. Um, but it's a memoir. It's a memoir. So you've lived through same-sex abuse? Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, I should, it sounds weird when you say it that way. It sounds like very, spe- I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's about, I mean, obviously there's a lot of writing about abusive relationships, but I feel like there are sort of, there's a unique quality to a sort of unique hidden quality to being in a, in a queer relation, in a, in a same sex relationship where abuse is happening because it's just not a thing that gets talked about a lot. Um, and there's not a lot of like models or references. I, I did. Well, I, the person I was dating was, and so I spent a lot of time at this this house, which sort of the, the metaphor of the house becomes very important in the book. Which where, may, the I, may I ask where in Indiana? Just because I, I used to live there. Uh, I don't want to say okay. uh, only because it's, this should be called house somewhere in Indiana. So anyway, Indiana right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the house becomes sort of this like extended metaphor for thinking about, I'm thinking, I mean, I'm really interested right now in like, just as a writer in general about like haunted spaces and like what it means to like, for a space to be sort of imbued with like psychology and so this house becomes a metaphor um 
so yeah, hence the title. Wow. It sounds fascinating. Congratulations on all of the above. Good luck at the National Book Awards. Thank you so much. I will be watching the live stream looking for you in your gold dress. Thank you. I will be there in my magnificent gold gown. I'm really excited. (laughs) For other people, listeners, like there, is there some sort of like a hand signal? So if the camera's on you, you can like drop a sign that says like, you know, I don't know. That's kind of a silly thing to ask. <laughs> a sign of what? Like, I'm, I mean, I'll, I'll, be, I'll tell you exactly what I'll be feeling. I'll be super excited. I'll be nervous. I'll like, feel like I have to go to the bathroom. I'll be like clutching my notes in my hand until they're so sweaty that like the ink is running. There we go. That's so what's going to be happening. That's, her, that's basically her hand signal. Just look for the notes. The sweaty cl- notes. The, cl- <laughs> the sweaty notes clutched in her hand. Well, good luck with everything. And, and thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, there you go. That's Carmen Maria Machado. Her story collection is called Her Body and Other Parties. It is available now from Grey Wolf Press, a finalist for the 2017 National Book Award. You can watch the National Book Award ceremony a week from uh, today, November 15th, 2017, live streamed on the internet from New York City. Carmen Maria Machado, Her Body and Other Parties, Grey Wolf Press. Go get your copy now. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. This uh, podcast has its own app. It's free. Available wherever you get your apps. Great way to listen. Get the app. Don't forget about uh, Patreon if you want to support the show. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to support Matt and Catherine Salisis. Remember that there is a link to their You Caring Fund pinned to the top of the Other People Twitter feed at OtherPPL. So I think I covered it. Did I cover everything? What do I usually say? You can follow this program on Twitter at other PPL. I just, I, you know, I can't say enough really about Roxanne Gay and about generosity. It's been on my mind. Like this whole experience has been instructive. This whole fundraising experience, like Obviously, you have to pick your spots. You can't be constantly fundraising or people are going to get worn out. But I I would be lying if I told you that it didn't feel good to try to do a little good in the world in that way. And to leverage the community that I've built with this show to help a good cause and to help somebody, you know, who's been on this program, who's part of the community, who's in a really tough spot. So it's, you know, I may do something else like this uh, again a while from now, like next year, I might try to make it an annual thing for a couple of weeks every year, you know, raise some money for a good cause. Maybe do a, di- a different t-shirt every year. Next year, it will be uh, belly shirts and tank tops, which I know excites a lot of you. <laughs>